Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And they start talking about, we're going to escape. And he's like, look, I was a scuba diver in the Navy. Y'all don't set a chance with these tides. They're too rough. The water's too cold. And at Alcatraz, the one benefit they were given was hot showers. Other prisons, you might have to take a cold shower, but not Alcatraz, because they didn't want them to get acclimated to cold water. So he's sitting there telling them, look, if you do this, you're going to have to leave on this side of the island at this time of day uh, when the tide is in this predicament, because it'll actually push you toward Angel Island, and that's going to be your best benefit. So listen, Matt, it's the only case in history that I can find where a serial killer becomes a true victim of crime, and then he reaches out to law enforcement for help because the detective that originally arrested him for his murders, he asked when she was still missing, can you find her? He said, you caught me after 25 years. Can you find my daughter? What? Exactly. Like, you couldn't even come up with it. Like This sounds so insane that yes. it's... It's almost fake. We're at lunch one day and he looks at me and he says, hey, do you mind if I give your kids some advice? And I said, of course not. You know, please. So he looks at my daughter, who's 10, and he says, never. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I am here with Cheryl McCollum. She goes by Mac. She's in law enforcement. She was on uh, CSI Atlanta. She is involved in cold cases and we're going to talk about some cold cases and just some, and basically her background. So check out the, uh, check out the interview. Where were you born? I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, grew up in Fulton County my entire life, even went to college in downtown Atlanta at Georgia state, uh, still work in Fulton County. So I'm right here, native. And um, how did you, so what, what got you interested in law enforcement? Wait a minute. Was it your mom? And the yes. Okay. No, but no doubt. She, my mother could tell a story that would just stop you dead in your tracks. And she was a tremendous gifted storyteller. And she knew a ton of history. She was a history teacher. So she would craft it in a way that you would just be on the edge of your seat. Well, we used to take long car trips. And when you would get outside Atlanta about an hour and a half, the radio wouldn't work any longer. Well, she had five girls to entertain. So she would usually start somewhere like, you know what this road reminds me of? Well, then we would know here it comes. 
And the first story that I remember being captivated by was Bonnie and Clyde. And it just went from there. And so then she would tell us stories about John Dillinger and Al Capone and Babyface Nelson. And it just never stopped being interesting to me. So from the age of four on, you know, it was always, what can I learn about? What can I read about? Who can I go meet? What can I go see? Um, and when they were, when I was eight, they took me to see the death car. And then when I was 12, they took me to Alcatraz. So it just never left me. Yeah. What did Bonnie and Clyde, they was at 18 months or something They're They're 16 months. They're crying. You know, it seems like it was, you know, if you hear all the stories and you think, oh, right. it must be just years and years, but it, it wasn't that long. It was not that long. Nope. I was wondering, I, I wonder what the, the real story is, you know, cause there were, there are like those reports and the documentaries yeah. that talk about how, um, oh gosh, was it, uh, who was the FBI director then? Um, Hoover, mm -hmm. right? Like he was, you know, kind of trying to manipulate the the press, you know, what was happening, what wasn't happening. And then it was like, right. okay, they were gunning down the officers or wait, maybe the officers shot at them first or, who, you know, like, I don't know. But it, it's kind of like I, I, had, I said earlier um, before we even started about that, the con man guy that I watched that movie about it was a it was a movie that was based on uh, true events but it was a real story and I talked to the the guy that wrote wrote the story and did all the uh, investigating and the guys on the FBI's most wanted list like yeah. he was he was just he was a kind of a he was kind of a con he was, he was very much he was a con man he was always running little scams and things and then suddenly he ended up just out of the blue he just he robbed a courier and he shot and killed him and it was so senseless that it just didn't it made no sense at all it was out totally out of character so right you just never know like you think like bonnie and clyde like they're robbing banks but they don't really want to hurt anybody but then again that doesn't mean that they weren't necessarily also killing people maybe they did maybe they who knows right well i'll tell you i need to introduce you to raylene linder and buddy barra they are family members of bonnie and clyde and they can tell you firsthand what they know, Raylene knew everybody involved. Um, and their story is, I don't even know how to tell you how captivating. Um, and it's a good, you know, again, to me, if you look at the history of crime, you can see the history of America. And when you talk about somebody like J. Edgar Hoover, he was a marketer. He was brilliant. When he came up with, you know, the most wanted, you know, public enemy number one. That's genius. Because now you've got everybody bought in to getting this person. So if, in fact, you know, John Dillinger is gunned down on the street, you've already told everybody he's the most violent person there is. So nobody questions anything about it. You know, so I mean, to me, he did a, an unbelievable job in that regard. But there's always two sides. So right. I think, you know, if you got a chance to talk to Raylene, you would just adore her. Right. I, I mean, there's just, there's so many underhanded things that, you know, Hoover was involved in that, um, was it, there was, there were these, there, there was a Nazi plot where they dropped off these saboteurs and one of the, one of the Germans went straight to the FBI and said, Hey, listen, this is what's going on. Like I, we landed, there's like six, six of us. We're supposed to blow this stuff up. I don't want to be involved. <laughs> and they go and they arrest all of them. 
including the guy that went to them. He and they 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 try them and they give them they all get like the electric chair. And just before the one one of the the main guy that had gone and turned them in, and keep in mind they didn't even want to believe him. He had to show up with a bunch of counterfeit money. He pulled out like like thirty thousand dollars in counterfeit U.S. bills and said, "Look, they gave us this money to use. It's counterfeit." And they were like, "What the hell?" So that was that made them think, "Oh, this has got to be real." Yeah. It turns out like the president commuted the guy's sentence to life, but Hoover had mm-hmm. pitched it as we discovered this plot, we arrested these guys, and then it ends up getting these guys the the death penalty and never says this guy came forward. He was the reason. And he's ready to execute him too. What a great way to keep him quiet. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's so many little underhanded things like that about Hoover that, mm-hmm. so it's, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's the same thing with like, you know, the Bonnie and Clyde thing, like where they, you know, they definitely, they definitely murdered some people, but I wonder sure. how, how it came about. And they definitely robbed some banks, but did they rob all the ones that they were, you know, pinned for? Right. I mean, there was no better time basically to rob your own bank and blame it on them. Right. Think right. about I it. Would, <laughs> or, or how much was, you know, how much was actually taken, you know? Exactly. They got $500, yep. you know, but they got $200. Right. Right. So, so the Alcatraz thing, we had talked about the Alcatraz, uh, mm-hmm. that you had met one of the guys that was in Alcatraz, a bank robber. Yes. Robert Chavon, inmate 1355, honey. Why, why did you, so how did you get connected with him? I got connected because again, I'm a, I'm a history buff when it comes to crime. And, you know, sometimes a story will just resonate with me. Well, the way he robbed banks, his getaway vehicle was the USS Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Greatest getaway vehicle ever. It's got to be. I mean, that beats a Model T. That beats an airplane. I mean, come on. Right? Right. So the way he would, you know, commit these crimes, he would stash civilian clothes in a locker at the bus station when they docked the first time. When they came. Navy. Because he was in the Navy. Right. So when they came around the second time, he would go to the bus station change out of his uniform into civilian clothes, walk down the street, rob the bank, walk back, change back into his uniform, and literally walk back on the ship. Well, anybody walking in downtown San Francisco or wherever he was, they're not going to look at a naval man twice. So even if they've gotten some alarm call, they're not going to look at him. And that's not how, you know, the witnesses are going to say he was dressed anyway. And by the time they're really investigating the case, Literally, that ship has sailed and he's in another port. And it was just such a brilliant yet elementary type, you know, scam that I thought I got to meet this guy. And then from our first meeting, we just became friends. And uh, I mean, he was funny. He was smart. He would openly tell you different things. Um, And he put a lot of things in perspective. And the first time I got to meet him in person, I got up on the porch and I knocked on the door and he's in the back of the house and says, you know, come on in. And so I was joking with him that, you know, hey, you know, you're not real security conscious, you know, being funny. And he went, listen, the minute I walked out of Alcatraz, I told myself I will never be behind a locked door again. And I thought, you know what? Mm -hmm. I get it. I love that. 
So, you know, you learn from anybody. So I can learn from a fantastic police commissioner and I can learn from an ex-criminal. They, they all have an expertise to share that you can use for the greater good. And, um, and he's just one of those people that I just connected with on a lot of levels. And uh, he was a family person. He was super devoted to his family. And um, in a full circle moment, again, when I was 12, my parents took me to Alcatraz. Then I befriended Robert. And then his daughter invited me to participate in his memorial service on Alcatraz, which was an experience. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I can't even tell you. It was just it was overwhelming to see the devotion of his daughter and then the respect from the Rangers. I mean, it was it was really unbelievable. And we had um, Michael Esslinger, who's an expert in Alcatraz. He's written tons of books. I mean, he was basically our private guide along with the Rangers. So we got to go places the general public didn't, you know, doesn't ever get to go. So it was awesome. And you you were saying that he his daughter like released his ashes underneath the the cell yes. under his yeah. cell window. Yes. So he wanted her to, you know, stand there literally under his, you know, prison cell and, you know, release his ashes so he could get off that island one more time. And if you knew him, I mean, that's part of his humor. Um, and it's also part of, you know, for him, it was just this, I'm going to be free. And it was, it was more of that than, you know, anything. So it was just, it was touching. It was interesting for historical purposes. Again, you know, if you look at America, you can track America through crime. I mean, the American mafia, you can take it all the way through the, you know, the way people rob banks, the way, you know, shootings happen, the way murders happen, especially some of the, you know, big time famous things that we all know. But Alcatraz is pinnacle to me. Uh, when, you know, when you mention him, like dressing up and it's funny because he, it's kind of like the, the opposite of the, uh, Thomas crown affair, you know, mm -hmm. uh, where he actually gets into a uniform that everybody sees that everybody recognizes, but it's certainly not what the police have been told to look for. Exactly. So I, I actually, I was locked up with a guy named Anthony Curcio who had robbed a and done a lot of research like really kind of figured this out he you know of course he, he watched the the uh, wells fargo truck show up at a bank of america mm -hmm. drop off the money uh, he knew somebody that was that actually worked there that he you know never you know wouldn't wouldn't you know they knew something was wrong because it was a drop of like 350,000 or 290,000. Like it was, it was an excessive amount of money yeah. for, for those types of drops. And he watched them, knew the schedule. He had a, an outfit, right? He had the face mask. I mean, sorry, you know, the guys that go around and they pick up trash. Mm -hmm. So he had a face mask, that little dust mask. He had or an orange, you know, the little, reflecting thing that you wear the vest uh-huh the vest he had the little uh we call them cadillacs in prison the, the long thing you so you don't have to bend over so you pick up yep. the, and and the little scooper thing you put the put it in 
and uh, blue jeans and a white shirt. And that was his kind of, he would dress up like that and wander around while he watched the schedule. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Of when these guys would come and go. And then he would take his stuff and roll it up and stick it in the bushes and then leave and then come back and keep watching him. So he knew the schedule of, sure. of the, the deliveries. And he went out and he got bear mace and he actually sprayed himself with the bear mace to see, you know, it's like, it's mace, you know, sure. Just to see if, you know, how bad is this going to decapacitate this person, this guy, because he said, I didn't want to use a gun. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to hurt him. And I didn't want to be charged with the gun. If something went wrong, I didn't want them to say, Hey, you used a, you wow. had a gun using forgeries and bogus identities. Matthew B. Cox, one of the most ingenious con men in history, built America's biggest banks out of millions. Despite numerous encounters with bank security, state, and federal authorities, Cox narrowly, and quite luckily, avoided capture for years. Eventually, he topped the U.S. Secret Service's most wanted list and led the U.S. Marshals, FBI, and Secret Service on a three-year chase while jet-setting around the world with his attractive female accomplices. Cox has been declared one of the most prolific mortgage fraud con artists of all time by CNBC's American Greed. Bloomberg Businessweek called him the mortgage industry's worst nightmare, while Dateline NBC described Cox as a gifted forger and silver-tongued liar. Playboy magazine proclaimed his scam was real estate fraud, and he was the best. Shark in the Housing Pool is Cox's exhilarating first-person account of his stranger-than-fiction story. Available now on Amazon and Audible. And and then this is where he this is where it just became it's like, okay, all of that's like, oh, okay. And then have you ever heard this story? No. Okay. And then he put an ad in Craigslist for the clean up Seattle foundation. And he was, they were paying $22 an hour for full-time employment. And it started on whatever it was Monday and 20 something people applied. He sent them all a list saying, that's fine. You have to show up at five of them showed up at one, one, um, area, five showed up at another, five showed up at another, five at another. And he said, you have to show up with your Cadillac, with your, right. your vest. He sent them a link on where they could buy it with the face mask, everything, wear blue jeans and a long sleeve shirt. And he said, that's basically your outfit. So you have to buy the stuff first, show up there that day at this time at, you know, be there between nine and nine thirty because that's when the truck arrived. And he went, he showed up too. Wow. So he said, guys are walking around. They're like, man, what should we do? He said, some of the guys are actually walking like a block away, picking up trash already. Yeah. Like they're already picking up trash and 
And they, they were told, start working. Your supervisor will be there between 9 and 9.30. He said, I just did the same thing. I just kind of hung out near the parking lot. And then I saw the truck. <laughs> and brilliant. he said, yeah, I saw the truck. And he said, as soon as I saw the truck, and the guy, he said, it was like three quick steps from the alleyway. Boom, boom, boom. Hit him with the mace. The guy dropped the bag, screamed. He grabbed the bag and took off running. He ran through a wooded area. And he had an inner tube in a canal. And he said, I just grabbed the inner tube, jumped on the inner tube, and the inner tube took him down. He said, just glided. Because in Seattle, there's like they're kind of like little islands. They have like sure. the road closed off. He said, they immediately closed the bridges. So they closed the bridges. So nothing but police could come in. He said, he jumped out, jumped off the inner tube, ran up the street to a a title company because he also was a real estate agent walked in the front door. He said, I stripped off everything, walked in the front door. And, um, she said, I mean, he goes, listen, as soon as I walked in, I was standing there and said, Hey, I need a copy of my closing statement from last week or from two weeks ago or whatever. They were like, Oh, okay. And he said, do you hear that? And they were like, what? And, he, and all he said, just then you started to hear the, Whoa. he goes, this sirens or something. Wonder what happened. And they, and they were like, yeah, I don't know. They were like, oh, yeah, I do. I hear it. It's just so he said, so I knew if I ever needed an alibi, I could say I was in that thing when I heard the siren. Oh, that's brilliant. Didn't live too, too far from the place. Anyway, so, yeah, they they searched for him and searched for him and searched for him. And he's one of those guys that whenever people talk to me and say, you know, do you ever think about doing anything again? I'm like, I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, what would be the perfect crime? I'm like, well. I can think of lots of perfect crimes. They're like, well, then why don't you do something? I'm like, because I can't think of the fly in the ointment. And that's what gets you messed up. Got you. Yep. Plan out some great, great crimes where you've never seen me. I haven't done anything. I was nowhere near it. There, you've got drop phones and you, you're using different computers and you, no, you never have to go in the place. You never have to do anything. <laughs> but- I'm saying you, there's just, there's always that thing you cannot think of. And in his case, when he took off running, he'd never been arrested. He took his mask and he threw his mask down. He said, I didn't mean to, I was just running. He said, I thought I had kept it with me and it just fell out, but I was running so fast. I didn't, I didn't, mm -hmm. he's like, the thing is nobody was chasing him, you know, but he was gone. Like, I mean, literally before the phone call really went out, he was already on the inner tube. Wow. So he dropped his mask. He said, no big deal. They got my DNA. Doesn't matter. I've never been arrested. And that mask could have got, come from any place, anywhere. Wasn't too worried about it. Um, and he said, so, you know, and they got, they've got nothing. Well, the FBI came and they reviewed, they talked to everybody. And keep in mind, the police show up. They start arresting these guys walking around with the, they're handcuffing all these guys. There's 20 of them walking around going, what's going <laughs> on? Hey, get on the ground. Ah! Yeah. So. You know, but not him. They got a lot of suspects. So he he said what what ended up happening in that case was the FBI. They talked to everybody, and they were looking through all the reports that came in because people start calling in. It might be my neighbor, might be this person. I think I talked to my buddy Joe down in the bar. He said this. He said they went through it all. Nothing. He said they went through it a second time when they came up empty, and they saw a report of a guy, a, a homeless guy had walked up to a city worker who was working on like the sewer system and said, I know who robbed that bank. And they're mm. like, and the guy said, what? And he said, the guy was, 
yelling and screaming. He had a little dog. He said he sounded crazy. I said, man, all right, all right, get out of here. He was with a guy. He goes, I did. He did make a report. The sewer, I mean, the, the guy working on this for the city made a little report. Hey, this guy came up to me, said he knows, said he knows it, but didn't want to talk to the police or something along those lines. Okay. He goes, well, let's go try and find that guy. He said, they grabbed a bunch of hamburgers. They went down where the homeless uh, are in Seattle and said, said, Hey, do you guys know somebody with a little dog and a beard? They said, Oh, you're talking about Bobby. Bobby lives in a bus in the woods. They go there, they pull up, they wa they're walking towards the bus. Bobby walks out and says, man, I've been waiting weeks for you guys to, or I'm sorry, months for you guys to show up. Is this about the bank robbery? And they, they said, yeah, do you know who the guy is? They like, he's like, well, I don't know his name, but I got a license tag. Oh my God. He had come. He said, oh yeah, he came like every other day. He right. Watched the thing. And he would roll up his clothes and his mask. And I got his tag number. Because Anthony never even thought about the nope. Guy that was w constantly walking around and lived in the woods. It's what you said, the fly in the ointment. How can you account for that? Right. And, and that's my problem. I'm like, look, you plan out this perfect crime and you mm -hmm. did something you simply cannot account for and you end up and have, you have to do 20 years. So you think, right. look, I'm, I'm brilliant. I'm smart. I did everything correctly. You can do everything correctly. One person somebody else makes a mistake or somebody else happens to see something, something you couldn't account for. Yeah. So my, my whole thing came unglued my scam because a girl I was working with went into the title company with an ID that had her picture on it, signed for a mortgage. And the person that the closing agent, the title agent looked at her ID and said, this doesn't look like you. And she said, what do you mean? That's me. Mm -hmm. she, no, something's not, something's off. This isn't you. Another title came, agent came in, looked at the picture and said, that's her. And she goes, no, something's wrong. This, I don't think this is you. I'm going to make some phone calls. I'll let you know. Took a good picture of her, took a good, put it on there, blew it up, made a good picture of the, of the ID, gave her ID back. She left. How am I supposed to account for the fact that that title person was wrong. Right. She made a mistake that unraveled my whole thing. So anyway, it's, mm. it's you know, like we were, we were talking about the, um, on Alcatraz about the guys that had escaped. And you, you had said that, um, the bank robber, I forget his name, Robert, Robert, that we said Robert had actually known them, sat down at the table with them. Yes. So they were assigned to the same dinner table. So there's Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers. They're all there with him. And they start talking about, we're going to escape. And he's like, look, I was a scuba diver in the Navy. Y'all don't set a chance with these tides. They're too rough. The water's too cold. And at Alcatraz, the one benefit they were given was hot showers. Other prisons, you might have to take a cold shower, but not Alcatraz because they didn't want them to get acclimated to cold water. So he's sitting there telling them, look, if you do this, you're going to have to leave on this side of the island at this time of day uh, when the tide is in this, you know, predicament, because it'll actually push you toward Angel Island, and that's going to be your best benefit. So what Robert did, part of his job was to go down to the lower end where they have one little guard shack right near the water. And he emptied the trash can. 
Well, the guard there was not supposed to bring in a newspaper. That was against the rules, but he did. And he would throw it away in that garbage can. Well, the San Francisco Chronicle published tide tables. So Robert would memorize them real quick, go back to his cell, write some things down so that he got the rhythm and the pattern so that he could best tell them, this is what you're going to need to do. You're going to try to leave during this time. This is your best shot. So he was instrumental in helping them understand the best way to go about it, which was crazy to me because, again, as a you know, eight-year-old and then a 12-year-old and then now thinking, I've actually talked to somebody. I've befriended somebody that had some small part into this escape. It was just, it was awesome for me. I mean, not just as a criminologist, but just anybody. I mean, that's a fascinating story, you know. And then he told me that the Birdman of Alcatraz was involved as well, that he taught them Spanish because their goal was to get to South America and they wanted to blend in as best they could. And knowing the language would only help that. So, I mean, he was just an incredible person. He, a wealth of knowledge. He was funny. You know, he was open. You know, we had a great friendship. Do you think that they made it? What do you think? You know, the 12 year old me. Yes. I think they made it. <laughs> you know, sometimes when I'm driving in my car and, you know, I start thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, you know, if, if they had it planned out, like I believe they did. And, you know, maybe a boat picked them up because there's rumors that a lot of the fishing vessels would, you know, toss out liquor and other things to get caught in the rocks for the inmates to find. So, you know, part of me wants to believe that that's why the raft was discarded because they were pulled up onto a boat. Logically, is the water too cold and too rough and too shark infested? Yeah. I mean, most likely. But then you're like, hey, but the family got that one Christmas card and the expert said, yes, the writing matched. And then you had the photograph. And again, the experts said that, yeah, that looks like them. So, you know, there's some evidence that they did make it. There's some evidence, obviously, that they didn't. Um, you made a great point when you and I were talking privately that it's very difficult for career criminals, even if they make it to South America, to never have another issue, to never commit another crime, especially if you get there and you have no money. <laughs> right. So they would have had to do something. Um, so did they have plastic surgery? Did they go straight? I don't know. Um, if that, if they in fact made it. Can you but again, it's a surgery back then. Oh sure, sure. Oh, it's rough though. That's... Oh, it would be rough, and it would be horrible but you wouldn't look the same so i guess <laughs> that would be the purpose yeah very very i'd say unlikely that they that they went straight but you know who knows or who knows like like we were saying earlier like you know who knows with with identification like they could have been arrested three states over for bank rob for robbing five banks and just giving them a different name it's not like there was a aphis they were going to pull up their fingerprints I mean, they could print them, but the likelihood right. that they were going to compare them to these guys and they were, going, you sure. know, so especially back then, if you had any kind of history, if your identity wasn't in question, then they really right. didn't question. Like if they lived in the county for two years or assumed someone's name or something, you know, they may have just been like, oh, yeah, see, you said so you live in New York. You moved here two years ago. He robbed three banks. Yeah. Throw him in jail. He does five years and gets out. Who knows? Well, like, you know, Robert Shablon told me that his 
goal when he was still in Alcatraz before he was released. He wanted the prints on the bottom of his toes to be put on his fingers. I don't know how that would work, but. Well, I mean, he had a doctor supposedly said that, yeah, he could take the top and then, you know, put them on and then his fingerprints would be completely different. And you had other people, you know, using acid or whatnot to burn them off and get rid of them. And Robert's idea was to replace them, which he thought was, you know, a smarter idea. But, you know, when he got released, he went straight. He opened up a dive shop and went back to what he had been trained to do in the Navy and was a scuba diver and taught scuba diving lessons the rest of his adult life. I guess if you're smart and you kind of get your head right when you're locked up, you can you start to realize that you can live on very little, you know, mm -hmm. like you, you really don't need, like, I mean, I, when I left the halfway house and I stayed in the halfway house the whole time, didn't even try and go home. Didn't not even, I'm staying here. Everybody complained. They take 20% of your, I'm like, listen, do the math. You can't live anywhere else this cheap. Right. You know, you, I just sat there and did the numbers one time. I said, oh, I'm staying here the whole time. Mm -hmm. And they're feeding me. So, um, nope. stayed there the whole time, got out, went and rented some, rented a room from somebody, you know, cheap going cheap. Yep. I mean, I was so thrilled. <laughs> I, I had, you know, I had a, a, I had a, I had this little thing, this little magic thing here that I could watch YouTube for free. I mean, like there was so much stuff for free for free. And I could, you know, I, I, all I have to do is kind of go back and if somebody cuts me off in my car and for an instant you know you get angry and i think i got time like it's fine <laughs> yeah you, know? you sound a lot like robert okay. robert's like i'm never locking a door again like yeah. you can't upset me you know he was so funny he was like look i got a jug of vodka over there i've got a tv i've got a car i can go do whatever i want to do when i want to do it he said i'll never be behind a locked door again life is good yeah. You know, I, I say that all the time. I'm like, people don't realize how good it is out here. Right. They have no idea. Right. Uh, but, you know, yeah. like, like I said, the recidivism is high, but that's because, you know, I think a lot of guys get out and they, they do well for the guys that intend to. There are other guys that I, I know guys that were, as soon as they got out, they were ready to commit crime. They were, yeah. that was just their life. You know, like they, I'm going to be in and out of prison and, you know, I'm going to try and stay out, but. I'm not getting a job at Walmart. Like they're just like, I'm not doing it. So, Oh, sure. So, but then there were other guys that I think they get out and I think a couple of years go by and they get frustrated and they can't buy the things they want. And they, they lose sight of the fact of how horrible prison, you know, is. Mm -hmm. And really it's not horrible. It's just, it's just so isolating. You have so little and, and you get out here and there's such an abundance of everything that you start to think you deserve everything. You get in, start feeling entitled you get yep. frustrated and their go-to move is crime <laughs> yes you know? did you ever know frank collada from the whole noir gang he was a mafia hitman that sounds he, really familiar he's depicted in the movie casino no but it's funny i i've interviewed a guy that knew like the guys that were in the movie okay casino. well frank and i were you know buddies too and one time we were are, are these? I'm sorry. Are these guys that you've met because of your podcast? No, these are people that I've met because of my job. Oh, okay. So I might be investigating a case or something, and I feel like you're going to have information that I need. And then they just turn out to be incredible people and are, you know, interesting. And, you know, they're 
they are who they are, right? right? But I mean, everybody has more than one side to them. But anyway, we're at lunch one day and he looks at me and he says, hey, do you mind if I give your kids some advice? And I said, of course not, you know, please. So he looks at my daughter, who's 10, and he says, never trust a man ever. So I thought, that's pretty good. You know, <laughs> just, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit more later. But, you know, men can come at you with ulterior motives. So, you know, between now and, you know, 25, just keep that in mind. So then he looked right at my son and he said, and this goes to what you were talking about just a minute ago. He looks at him and he says, reading never got me paid. So my son, of course, took that to mean, I'm never doing homework again. <laughs> it's, a, it's a waste of time. But what he was trying to say was the education piece was never going to garner him the money that crime would. And so to your point, when you're talking about somebody that gets released and they're frustrated, McDonald's is never going to give them the money that they want. That's never going to get you a Lamborghini. That's never going to get you a penthouse. It's never going to get you the Rolex. It's not. Right. And so your mindset has to change. And that's the biggest thing that I've seen. I mean, Robert, his mindset changed. His thing was, I can walk out of my backyard and nobody's going to tell me I can't go out there. I can get in a car and drive. So for him, that was worth millions. Yeah. You know, but the person that is still, you know, chasing that get rich quick, you know, calling, um, you know. Yeah. Oh, like I, I feel like, like, you know, although I do, I, I work all the time, mm -hmm. you know, but, and that's what I feel like it, I don't really, but I don't feel like it's working. Does that make sense? Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not laying block. I'm not hanging drywall. I'm not on a, right. on a roof in Florida. I mean, you might as well, you must be a sadist if you're going to be a roofer in Florida. I hear you. Yep. So, you know, I barely go outside during the day. I almost really never leave. I, I'm actually going to mm -hmm. sell my car because I was talking to my wife and I was like, listen, I'm paying like, like 400 bucks for the car payment, another $200 for, for, um, insurance. Mm -hmm. This is ridiculous. I'm like, I never drive. She drives right. up to the gym in the morning and back. Mm -hmm. I said, if I had to go somewhere, it would be cheap, cheaper to Uber. I could Uber eight times a month. I could leave my house twice to Tampa and back and still not pay $600. Correct. Five or $600, whatever it comes to. So anyway, uh, um, but yeah, I, I basically never leave the house. Like I, I do this, mm -hmm. you know, I, I write, uh, I write articles. I do re I research articles and, um, you know, I paint like, Think about what I do. Yes. I talk to people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I talk to people, I write stories and, you know, I paint like, honestly, it really like, do you really have a job? I mean, I make my own schedule. Right. It's, it's, it's really like the idea that I was, and anybody who's ever watched my show has probably heard me say this 30 times. The, the fact that you know, I have to remind every time I start to get cocky or arrogant, I kind of remind myself like, bro, five years ago, you were laying in a bunk bed in prison thinking to yourself, 
how am I going to make a living? Like th- I was telling myself, you're going to get a job mm-hmm. at McDonald's mm-hmm. and you're going to work your way to another job that you like. And maybe you'll sell used cars. You're going to live in someone's spare room and you're going to be happy. You're going to be thankful. Yeah. So, you know, and I would tell myself that. And so the idea that I'm making a living goofing off, my, my, my wife says, you live a cat's life. Like you, <laughs> you, you take naps. Like you, you sit on the couch. You and I'm like, hey, that's what you think I do during the day. She's like, I do. I that do. is awesome. You know, yeah. But your story is inspired, and I that's think that's true. why it's so important. But it's I the just, truth. If you think about five years ago, you're laying in that cot, and people think, oh, when you get out, you're never going to be able to find anything. Your life's going to be crap. It's going to be whatever. And you have people telling you, why don't you try this? Why don't you go back? Why don't you pull off the perfect job? I mean, really. Thanks for the help, folks, because you're trying to get me pinched again. Like, why in the world? But what you're telling people is you don't have to have, you know, the corner office. You don't have to bust rocks. You don't have to be laying tar on a roof. Good God Almighty. I mean, I can't think of anything worse in Florida, right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I can't. And I know, like, our dad, we would be driving, and he would see somebody doing that type of job. And all he would say is, girls, do your homework. (laughs) I I mean, that's hard work, you know. And again, I think for people that are listening to you that are maybe going to get out in six months or a year. Okay, there are things you can do. And I think that's important for people to hear. I do. Yeah, I, you know, you say the inspiration thing. I hear the inspiration all the time. Mm -hmm. I get mm-hmm. emails from guys saying how inspirational my story is. I'm like, mm-hmm. and I'm always like, I've, I don't, I never once tried to be inspirational. I, I mm-hmm. interview guys that went to prison, got out mm-hmm. of prison and and they'll sit here and they'll talk about, they'll, they'll, they'll preach inspirate, like preach, like try, it's so obvious that they're trying to be, you know, yep. but now I, 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 it's all about the kids now. And, and it's all, it's like, you know, and letting them know not to do this. And I'm like, all right, all right, stop. It's so, I feel like it's disingenuous. It's like, and stop. That's why you work. You're not trying. Yeah. I, I'm so I'm, I'm like, but I keep getting these guys that come, but I also get the guys that, that send me the emails that say, bro, like, I'll give you however much money you want. If you'll just tell me how to do this, how to mm-hmm. do that help me set it up, help me do this. And I'm always like, are you serious? Like you do understand that if you go out right now and just do anything, the the feds are just going to add my name to the indictment. I mean, they're going to look at your phone. They're going to see that we've spoken six times on the phone. They're going to see that we had correspondence. You know, mm-hmm. They're going to like, they, they don't even have to tell the jury. They can just say, oh, by the way, he was in communication with this guy. They're going to be like, add his name. That's yeah. Then if, even if I said, hey, you know what? I'm I'm going to trial. Wow, what a mistake that is. I can't take the stand because right. they're going to be like, oh, you took the th- Oh, by the way, jury, now that he's taken the stand, we're going to list all the things he's been right. convicted of. Right. Don't convict me again. <laughs> even if there's no new evidence. Right. And he was talking to this guy who got yeah. caught doing the same thing he, he was doing. They're gonna be, the jury, even if I was on the jury, I'd be like, yeah, bro, I I don't. Hell of a coincidence. Yep. I'm like, don't talk to me about that. Like, you sound like my husband. 
my husband laughs. I mean, I've got plenty of prosecutors and judges and special agents in my phone, but I also have the Frank Collada's of the world and Robert Shablon and Johnny Lee Cleary. And he says, what if something legitimately happens to you and they go through your phone and you've had contact with a hitman, you've had contact with this person in a hate group, you've had contact with this person, you know, but again, as they say, game recognizes game. You know, a con man is going to look at you and understand. A prosecutor is going to look at you and understand. So, you know, part of me, again, you are inspirational. And I think your story is important. And it's important for both sides. Because I have people that, you know, sometimes give me a hard time. Like, how can you possibly say this criminal is your friend? Um, Because he was. Right. (laughs) You know, he was good to me. He was funny. He was engaging. He taught me a lot. I mean, that's a good friend. And yeah, he had a past, but, you know, for the grace of God, right? Like I started somewhat as a con artist. I'll tell you a story. You'll enjoy this. So I saw in a weekly reader where if you had chinchillas, you could make thousands of dollars. And that seemed like a get rich quick, which sounded good to me. I didn't want to work hard. I mean, I was, you know, six or seven years old. So I called the 1-800 number and I wanted to order the whole thing. Give me the chinchillas, the incubators, the lights. I need it all because I'm going to be super rich. So then they said, okay, what credit card? And I was like, well, I don't know anything about a credit card. And she goes, well, we can send it COD. And I said, well, what's that? And she goes, that's cash on delivery. Let's do that. So we're, you know, it's six to eight weeks. Well, you know, when you're that little, that might as well be two years. I mean, I basically forgot about doing it. All of a sudden, there's a knock at our door one Saturday. And this person is delivering live animals. It's stamped on the crate. And my dad is like, what? And they're like, these are the chinchillas and the incubators and all the wires and the lights and the feed. And, you know, you owe us whatever it was. I don't remember if it's $175 or what it was. But at the time... You know, in 1970, it was a ton of money. And my dad's like, you can take these things right home back. You know, I'm not paying you for this stuff. Well, I'm standing there. You're missing the opportunity of a lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be rich, you know. And of course, he's cracking up. But he's also like, you cannot be ordering stuff, you know, much less COD. And you probably were not going to make a dime. And, you know, I was frustrated for a good couple of years because, okay, we're just going to stay broke. (laughs) He would not get with the program. And I'm like, sir, come on. Bent is the story of John J. Boziak's phenomenal life of crime. Inked from head to toe, with an addiction to strippers and fast Cadillacs, Boziak was not your typical computer geek. He was, however, one of the most cunning scammers, counterfeiters, identity thieves, and escape artists alive, and a major thorn in the side of the U.S. Secret Service as they fought a war on cybercrime. With a savant-like ability to circumvent banking security and stay one step ahead of law enforcement, Boziak made millions of dollars in the international cyber underworld with the help of the Chinese and the Russians. Then, leaving nothing but a John Doe warrant and a cleaned-out bank account in his wake, he vanished. Boziak's stranger-than-fiction tale of ingenious scams and impossible escapes, of brazen run-ins with the law and secret desires to straighten out and settle down, makes his story a true crime con game that will keep you guessing. 
Bent, how a homeless teen became one of the cybercrime industry's most prolific counterfeiters. Available now on Amazon and Audible. You know, there's other things that I tried. I, I saw a truck and it said, pine straw for sale. Our yard is eat up with pine straw. So if you're going to buy it, right? And then I went to my neighbors who were elderly and I said, you know, can I rake your yard? They're like, sure. And I'm like, suckers. Because <laughs> they don't realize people pay for this. Well, again, my dad had to explain, honey, you're not going to make any money. I mean, you can rake every yard in this community, you know. So anyway, he uh, it's, he's the reason I'm still broke. I mean, that's just it. <laughs> So. <laughs> so we all have a little con artist. You know what I mean? Yeah. And absolutely. I think we all we all have good. We all have a little, maybe not so good, but um, people are mostly good. <sighs> um. So, okay. So <laughs> I don't know how we got on top of it. So when did you start? <laughs> okay. What? <laughs> When did you, this is, we're, we're 50 minutes into this one. Okay. There's 25 on the other one. How did you start? Quickly. Um, <laughs> I, I always, okay, you know, again, I read everything I could. And, um, when I was 18, the very first criminal justice gig, I guess that I ever had, um, I was hired to be a store detective at a large department store called Rich's. At 18? Yeah, because they wouldn't suspect me. It was great. I had a great time, learned a ton. Um, from there, I worked at the Greater Eureka Crisis Center because they would actually allow me to volunteer there at 18. And I could actually interview victims. And I worked directly with a gentleman by the name of Detective Black. He was extraordinary to me. He taught me how to interview. He taught me how to write a report. And there were often times that I was able to get information from the victim that he was not able to. So that was just laying the groundwork for what was to come. And then as I worked through college, I had different internships. I had one with the FBI, one with the Secret Service. I just had a great time. Um, and then my first real job was with the Crime Commission. And I just never looked back. And this year is my 40th year doing something in criminal justice. Okay. Did you ever work for like the, who do you, who do you work for now? You said you're currently. I work for a metropolitan Atlanta police department and I'm their crime scene investigator. Okay. How long do you work there? I've been there eight years this week, actually. Okay. Do you ever work for the sheriff's department or. I worked for the Fulton County Sheriff's department for eight years in special ops. I worked for the crime commission. I worked as a probation officer. I've done a lot of really interesting uh, I've had a really lucky career. When I was with the Crime Commission, I was assigned to the Major Case Division, and we had a prosecutor there that was just a spitfire. And the first time I ever met the prosecutor was about 2.45 in the morning at a crime scene, and this little sports car comes flying up, and this person jumps out, and they're like, what do you got? What do you have? What can I do to help? And I'm like, what in the world is that? I mean, I had never seen anything like it. I had never seen at that time a prosecutor outside the courthouse. They always stayed in the ivory tower, as it were. Right. And that prosecutor turned out to be Nancy Grace. Oh, my God. So, you know, I've had a lot of luck. 
I mean, I was in charge of the Olympic crisis response team, which nobody would have ever cared anything about, except we had a bomb. And then that matriculated into training with the State Department. And I got to train every single Olympic crisis response team from then on. So, you know, luck is luck is good. So uh, Nancy Grace, mm-hmm. I, I wrote a story about a guy named Frank Amadeo. Uh, Frank Amadeo is a, the short version is he's a, he's a rapid cycling bipolar with features of schizophrenia. Mm. He's a lawyer and uh, he was a tax attorney in Atlanta when Nancy Grace was, um, was the, uh, the, I guess the attorney, the state attorney, a state attorney or she was just the assistant district attorney. district attorney. Okay. Right. And so he ended up having a, a, a bout of depression for like a couple of weeks, like two, three mm. weeks where like he couldn't get out of bed. And this would happen every few years to him. Sure. So he, so he was basically the one running. He had two partners, but they were pretty much useless in this, uh, this, um, it was a, a tax attorney, kind of like H&R Block, but for okay. bankruptcy. Okay. I keep saying tax, for, for bankruptcy. Sorry, he was, a, he was in a tax attorney. He was a bankruptcy attorney. Sorry. And they were kind of trying, trying to do like a mill, right? They're just running them through. Well, anyway, he was the one who was basically doing most of the work. So when he disappears for two weeks, he was in the hospital for like a week. And then he wouldn't get out of bed at his house. So by the time he shows back up, this whole, everything's falling apart. Anyway, they ended up pilfering the account where people were paying money in to the account. And they ended, uh, he says is, I don't know what's true and what's not true. He says his partners ended up taking the money. He ended up saying something like he ended up getting 30,000 of it, but didn't realize what, how they were paying. I might forget exactly what the story was, but in the end, uh, the place closed. There were a lot of unresolved uh, bankruptcies and Nancy Grace came in and investigated the entire thing and tried to get Frank indicted. Mm. Tried to indict him, had held a, a couple of uh, grand juries, but they wouldn't indict because I guess he wasn't really on the accounts and even, you know, so wasn't sure. So, but she was so upset about it. She went to the U.S. attorney and gave him all the information and the U.S. attorney was able to indict him. And uh, so... Anyway, that's that's kind of you know that's my Nancy Grace story. I'm sure you have hundreds way better than that. But <laughs> she actually made an attempt to indict this guy, and then when she was so frustrated and irritated that she she couldn't indict him, she's like, "Oh, well, I got you." And she went and gave it because you know the U.S. Attorney obviously the Feds have a much more lenient sure. ability to on a lot of their um, a lot of the federal laws. I had never heard that story. I I don't know him. Um, it sounds sad all the way around, um, but I will tell you, she comes from a place, being a victim of crime, that if she sees victimization in any way, financial, physical, emotional, she doesn't tend to let loose of it. And I tell people a lot that if you had a child missing, would you want her own it? Right. And 100% of the time, people say yes. If it's their child, because she's not going to turn loose. She's not going to stop arguing. She's not going to stop calling people out. And she's got such a heart. I mean, I know her, know her. Um, 
I just told you that's how we met. But I mean, we, you know, have maintained our friendship. And uh, I will I will tell you just one story. Um, and I don't think she would care if I told this, but like back in the day, she took files home. So if you ever went to her house, she would have these files sometimes spread out. And we were there one night talking about a case and she literally touched every single file and prayed over it. She prayed for the officer. She prayed for the judge. She prayed for the victim. She prayed for herself. You know, please let me do the right thing. Let everybody do the right thing and let there be justice. And that's one of those things that if you don't, if you only know the TV persona, um, you sometimes think, man, she's just, you know, a bulldog. But then when you think about, you know, she was so close to being married and she was so happy and she was so young and she was innocent. I mean, you're talking about a girl from Macon, Georgia, that went to college at Valdosta State, that had her whole world not flipped upside down, but ripped apart. That instead of just going home and not being able to get out of the bed, decided, okay, my fiance was murdered, who was a baseball star, and I was going to be an English teacher. Well, now I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to make sure this doesn't happen to another person. So, right. Well, everybody's hard on, on law enforcement, you know. Oh, sure. Then, until, until someone breaks in their house. That's right. Or they're attacked. Or they need them, and then it it's defund the police until sure. until my their you know my neighborhood is overridden with crime. Yep, and then it's where the police. It's like, oh, well, you were at that protest last month. That's <laughs> right. They are. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Uh. So yeah, I can see her. Uh. I mean, I I could see wanting that prosecutor after it, it was any even Frank. We were I wrote I wrote a story on him, and we were in, incarcerated together. And he was like, he's like, she, she had two grand jur or two grand juries, two. Yeah, she couldn't indict me, two. And he was like, she just wouldn't let it go. <laughs> it was like, well, that's her. You got indicted. He's like, I didn't even know. I didn't know anything about it. And right. I wonder. Um, but we're we're <laughs> but, talking. But you're in prison. Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. talking in prison. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, he's uh, he was he's an interesting character. Yeah, you'd you'd have a field day with him. Um, I mean, he's actually incarcerated. And I wrote a story ab about him, by the way. It's called It's Insane. I actually wrote a book, but I, I wrote mm. a synopsis and a book. Uh I expanded the synopsis, you know, once I got uh, out of prison, but I wrote a synopsis in prison. It's probably twelve or thirteen hundred words, maybe, maybe fourteen hundred words. And it's on my website if you if you ever want to read it. And if you okay. don't want to, I have a I have a, an audio version. Anyway, he since he was in his teens, he has believed that God is talking to him, mm -hmm. and he is preordained to be emperor of the world. Now, remember, this is he's got features of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Goes to college, gets a degree, very smart. Sure, gets a law degree, gets out, starts this. Um, uh, starts this uh, bankruptcy thing, uh, bankruptcy kind of firm that, uh, and it ends up, you know, failing after whatever five six years. He then becomes a venture capitalist. He then gets indicted. He goes to, goes to a camp for like a year. Gets out. He then gets out of that. Becomes a, a venture. Sorry, becomes a venture cap venture capitalist. Puts together a massive massive company. Starts raising money for his company, which is ultimately going to 
basically, you know, it's like Spectre. He he is expecting it to dominate, economically dominate the the U.S. and then spread throughout all continents. And 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 you know, and he's and listen, he also has a military wing. Like he's got his mm-hmm. own private military. They've got contracts in in um in Afghanistan. He's it's you know it's it's a massive operation. I've got pictures of him with Bush. Uh, at the White House, and I don't mean like a photo op. I mean like they're sitting in the Roosevelt Room, like you know, right. like a group of people. He went. He would spot help sponsor a NATO summit. He, it, it's just a massive, massive um, mm. undertaking. This company ultimately he ends up. He's doing most of this, by the way, by embezzling money by not paying federal income taxes, employment taxes to the tune of $200 million. Wow. Eventually the whole thing, the feds come in. Wow. The whole conspiracy behind it. He gets indicted. He goes to prison for 22 years. That's where I met him. So he's, he's a fascinating uh, Mm -hmm. guy, but 200 million. uh, Yeah. It's, it's uh, Oh, listen. And if you read the story, it's insane. Like he would, the things he was telling me. And then of course I would order the freedom of information act mm-hmm. and I'd order the transcripts and, and I'd get the transcripts and the freedom of information act. And you've got, you've got, you know, FBI reports where they're talking about how he's trying to buy, you know, airplane. He's trying to buy like, um, he's, uh, F 16s and F 15s. He's negotiating contracts to buy these used, you know, they gut them. They take all the electronics out. You can still right. buy the planes. He's right. talking about, putting them in Cyprus, you know, he wants to buy, you know, 25 of them. He, he backed a coup in the Congo. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a documentary about that. Yeah. Uh, it, anyway, he's, he's fascinating, but so, uh, back to you. Can I ask you, do you, can you, do you have any cold cases mm-hmm. that are interesting to you that you would, that you could talk about? Absolutely. I think one that I will talk about right now is um, Melissa Wolfenberger. And the reason I'll talk to you about her is because we've been having a theme, this whole conversation, but Melissa went missing and she was married and her mother could not get any police department to take a missing persons report because she's married, she's grown. And if she doesn't want to have contact with you, she doesn't have to have contact with you. And if, she wants to disappear or run away. That's not illegal. But her mom kept saying, something's not right. She wouldn't have just left her children. Um, she wouldn't, you know, stop having contact with me. Like, even if she wanted to leave her husband, that's one thing, but she wouldn't abandon her family. So this goes on a while. And finally, she badgers her own police department enough where finally a detective says, fine, I will take a report that she's missing, but I can't investigate it. She didn't live in our jurisdiction. There's no sign of a crime at all, but I will take it for paper trail. Well, she went to Atlanta police and then said the same thing. She's missing. And Atlanta said, okay, since they've taken a police report that she's missing, we'll do the same thing, but that's as far as we can go. We've been by the house. There's no sign of anything. They've moved away is what it looks like. Fast forward, a driver delivering for UPS sees a ripped garbage bag and a skull in the middle of the street. He stops 
the skull is misidentified as a Caucasian male. So it sits on a shelf because it's not pertaining to Melissa. Right. Fast forward again, months later, that was April, the skull was found. In June, four more trash bags were found, each containing an arm or a leg. Some dental records were done, comes back to be Melissa. Now, this has been going on for years and years. The person that has been helping me understand the crime, understand the players, understand what law enforcement could and could not do, uh, and most importantly, understand possibly the number one suspect is her father. Her father... I thought, you were gonna say, I thought you were going to say her husband. No, no, he's probably on the suspect list, but the person that's helping me understand everything, who's literally helping me oh, okay. on the case, is her father, who is the Flint River killer. So we've been communicating via letter because um, he's in prison. So again, it's one of those things, who understands a killer better than another killer? Who understands these principal players better than him? Who understands who's probably got a beef with him? Who wanted retribution? Or who had a background that was indicative of somebody that might, at one point, snap, possibly? So, again, everybody has a gift. Your story is helping people. Hopefully, my background can help people. Nancy Grace's background is helping people. Well, the Flint River Keller, his background prayerfully is helping people and in this particular instant his own daughter wow what what how insane is that that his own daughter ends up getting murdered listen matt it's the only case in history that i can find where a serial killer becomes a true victim of crime meaning somebody in his immediate family is murdered right and then he reaches out to law enforcement for help because the detective that originally arrested him for his murders, he asked when she was still missing, can you find her? He said, you caught me after 25 years. Can you find my daughter? So it's an incredible story. Um, and it's, it's one of those that I think will be in my career. It's going to be the only one like it. It's the only one in history like it. But again, sometimes people in prison have the information you need. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what a, what a great, if there was an actual, a, a resolution, wouldn't that be, that would be just what a, what a phenomenally unique. Yep. Story, you know, bizarre, but just, just bizarre. Right. Like you can't make yeah. it. That's, that's a great thing about true crime. Like, you know, how many times I've been writing someone's story or interviewing them and you just look up and you go, what? Exactly. Like, you couldn't even come up with it. Like this sounds so insane that yes. it it's almost fake. Like it's oh, almost absolutely. Like yeah. If I sat down and was watching some show and this was the premise, I'd be like, ah, come on. Never gonna happen. Never gonna happen. Like with Robert Chablon, I was the only person in law enforcement he would fool with. When he would even go back to Alcatraz, he didn't want to shake hands with the old guards. He would, he would openly tell you, I don't have any use for anybody in law enforcement. We are not friends. I mean, it was literally an us versus them in his life. So I get that. Um, but when you, again, you've got somebody that 
they chose the path they chose for whatever reason. But now, you know, just like Nancy Grace, Nancy was on one path and it got flipped. You know, Carl was on one path and it got flipped. So at this point, you need the help of the very people you can't stand. Mm. You know, it's all good. And then maybe prayerfully, we can see each other a little different. I it's it's funny. I was going to say how small the world is and how, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's I had I wrote a story about a guy whose best friend had he, he had overdosed, you know, like everybody thought it was an overdose, but it, mm -hmm. when everybody didn't think it was over. The police said it was an overdose. He kept, he and everybody else was like, it's not an overdose. This, this, this doesn't make sense. Like they're like, oh, well then he killed himself. They're like, he didn't kill himself. Like, you know, and then a couple, a year or two later, the guy who wrote the story about his name's uh, Vitali, Joseph Vitali. He gets arrested and he's in, in the U S Marshals holdover waiting mm -hmm. to be sentenced. And he befriends or a guy kind of starts talking to him, befriends him. And that guy ends up, he's like, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm, he's, I'm a stockbroker. I, I raise venture capital and do this. No, oh, okay. They have a little conversation. He's like, oh, I knew a stockbroker. Oh, you did? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, we, and he mm -hmm. starts telling him about how they kind of befriended him mm -hmm. and we're hanging out and we're partying and doing drugs because a lot of people, this is in, in uh, Palm Beach. Palm Beach is notorious for all these. It, listen, it's half the guys in Palm Beach are, are con artists. So he's down there and, and, you know, they're in, in that industry, a lot of drugs, a lot of, you know, so the guy ends up talking about him, talking to him. And he said, and I start to realize that he's talking about my buddy. Mm. And he, and he goes, so I kind of keep saying, oh yeah, yeah. You know, Oh, do you know so-and-so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a whole conversation. The guy ends up telling him, yeah, that guy owed this girl that I used to mess with a lot of money. He said, I ended up having to do him in. And he's like, he's like, really? Like, he doesn't know he knows him. Sure. He, he never said, I know that guy. Wow. He, and he ends up saying that he, and he goes, how did you do it? He said, I gave him a hot shot. And he was like, when he told him, he said, I didn't know what that was. Mm -hmm. He's like, a hot shot. He's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I such and such. And, you know, I did this. He's like, then we went through the house. We got like 30 grand. We now keep in mind too, his girlfriend, or his fiance, when they found the body, she of course immediately said, it's a, it, you understand he was murdered. The house was robbed. Mm -hmm. We're missing 30,000 in cash. We're missing. And she listed all of these items. Wow. And they, the problem was, is he was doing drugs. He oh. did die of a no drug overdose. So the police mm -hmm. looked at it twice mm -hmm. and they said, you know, look, I get it. But the guy's not talking. Mm. You know, he by the way, he was back in for robbing banks. He'd gotten out of prison, like we got out of prison in the halfway house, started robbing banks, got picked up again. In the meantime, he kills this guy, gets picked up again, goes, and he's waiting sentencing with happens to be the guy's best or, or best friend or good friend if you can have a best friend when you're in your 30s. Mm. Um yeah. So I mean, what a small like those that's one of those things that you just you couldn't that's right. And it those coincidences that happen, you go, how? That's right. How odd is that? What a small world. It is a small world. And, and yeah. the guy would say something. Of course, he's saying something because he's thinking, what are, what are the chances of this guy? Yeah. He's nobody. He's just some guy in prison. We're both waiting. Like, he doesn't know yeah. enough. He said, but I did know. I knew all the people that he knew. I knew who it was. He has even mentioned the name of his subdivision. 
specifically told him the name of the subdivision. I mean, like he was naming off all of these things. Anyway. Crazy. Yeah. It's uh it's it's an odd, odd world. So yeah, I, I love true crime. It's those types of things that you go, that's that's bizarre. There's so many bizarre things. Boy, that that story you that's amazing. The um that's gotta be a resolution. You, you need to gotta figure that one We're out. Hoping. We're hoping. Mm, mm, mm. I'll text you when I have an update. All right. For sure. <laughs> and you have a podcast, right? I do. It's called Zone Seven. What do you what do you talk about on the podcast? Cold cases um that we've worked and Zone Seven came about because in the Atlanta Police Department there's six police zones. So back in the day before cell phones, if we wanted to all meet afterwards, you know, you just couldn't go over the radio and say, Hey everybody, we're gonna meet at the bar tonight. So we would say, let's five nine at zone seven after shift. So that way it would be acceptable. Um, and then zone seven kind of became this group of people that you trust, that have your back, that are not going to, you know, do harm to you by talking about you or setting you up or any of that kind of stuff. The people you can literally go to, you know, not unlike a criminal organization, you know, you want those people that are going to tell you the truth, that are going to protect you, that are going to, you know, not talk crap about you when you're not in the room. The people that only want to help you, whether it's on a case or, you know, further your career or whatever. So your zone seven is, you know, pretty small, um, but it's a powerful group. So that's why I call it zone seven, because the people that I have, my guests are people that are in my zone seven. Okay. So. How many people are, is it just, are you the host or are there other people involved? I'm the host and I bring people in because they have something to do with the case we're talking about. They either have an expertise in whatever it is, or they helped me, or we searched the scene together. There's some reason they're there and that'll come out during the, you know, interview. Okay. How often do you, uh, do you post? Like how long have you been doing it? I've only been doing it six months yesterday. And I post on Wednesdays, once a week. Okay. And is it on YouTube? No. It's just, you know, iHeart and Spotify, that sort of thing. You got to put it on YouTube. You got to get the, you got to get the StreamYard thing. Put I got to learn how to do that. <laughs> I figure it out. I couldn't okay. get cell phone when I got out. <laughs> Clear. I mean, there Clear. Roger that. No, there was no iPhone. There were no iPhones when I yeah. went to prison. When Isn't I there was crazy? no YouTube. When I went to prison, YouTube had been out for like a year. I'd never been on it that I know of that I could recall. Facebook yeah. had been out for like a year. I was on the run, and I remember my girlfriend said, "Hey, do you want to get a Facebook page?" There's this thing, Facebook. People are moving from MySpace to Facebook, and I was like, "I don't think that's a good idea. I'm wanted. It's probably not a good idea. <laughs> I don't know. Feel bad. I, I'm not. You know, I'm not an expert on being wanted, but." feels like a bad idea and it does feel like a bad idea <laughs> yeah and I'm, you know i'm not an expert but so and then youtube had you know like it had just come out like you weren't readily watching it you know people weren't seeing like i don't ever recall knowing what it was but i, I do know when i've looked back on it like oh no it was out but i don't ever recall hearing really hearing about it till i till i was years into prison and then uh and then podcast wasn't a thing because that's a new word that wasn't even invented until like right. 2008 or nine or 10 or something. Right. It's like they put two words together. And then 
I would meet guys. iPhones didn't come out till like 2009. So I was already locked up like three years. I remember there was a guy one time telling me he, cause he was there for like almost like a half a million to a million dollars in, in iPhone crimes. He would, he would get, he would get a corporation, have people go in and get corporate accounts. Like they'd give them like nine iPhones on corporate accounts. They didn't have to have a, they, they didn't run the credit, nothing, which is corporation. And so they get the phone, didn't go on their, on their uh, credit or anything. So they give them the phone for nothing. So they get like nine and he has send people in over and over. And then he'd sell the, he'd pull out the SIM cards or whatever. And then he, he'd sell the phones uh, overseas. They'd give him like 400 bucks for like a thousand dollar or 500 bucks for a thousand dollars. So he did this to the tune of like five or 600,000 or something. And so he was trying to explain it to me. And I was like, right, right, right. He's like, you know how in the, he kept saying, well, you know how in the iPhone this, you know how the iPhone I said, and after about five minutes, I said, listen, listen, your crime didn't exist when I got locked up. Wow. I'd been locked up at that point, like 10 years. Yes. And he was like, oh, wow, bro. How long you been in here? (laughs) It was like. Of course, he's a kid. He's like in his late twenties, so he's like, you know, always haven't they always existed? I'm like, no, no, yeah, so, that's crazy. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, there was a so if I can figure out how phones work and iPhones and YouTube and all that, like, come on, Roger that. You you really have. Like, I'm on it today. You know, that's the, I love the guys <laughs> who are like, you know. You know, well, I'm not really a techie person. Stop it. Stop. <laughs> um, I'm doing it today. I will start learning. <laughs> yeah, I was amazed. YouTube, you can look anything up. I can oh, yeah. say anything to YouTube. Yes. And, and if somebody's made a video. There's 1,500 videos on anything that I ask it. Yep. I learned how to edit and, and do everything on, on YouTube. Nobody. No, you're right. Me. I yeah. didn't read a manual. I just said, you know... It, Final Cut Pro, uh, how do you stack videos? And there's like 1,500 of them. Yes. I'm like, wow. Yes. Well, all right. I know you've spent way more time than than uh, you expected to spend. I've so. enjoyed every second of it, Matt. Right. Absolutely. And listen, when you come to Atlanta next week, call me. I would love for you to come by and I'll show you the police station, give you a ride. We'll have some you know, fun. What's funny, I, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> it'd be nice to ride in the front of the police car. Absolutely. So, uh, <laughs> you know what's funny is like when you first said Atlanta I thought my first thought was I stole $400,000 in Atlanta <laughs> like, that was the first place when when the FBI showed at my office <laughs> the first place I went to in uh, Alpharetta Georgia Alpharetta Alpharetta I rented some, somebody's house that was worth about 200000 I went down to Fulton County satisfied the two loans he had on his house made a fake ID in his name Name was uh, Michael Shanahan. And then I called three hard money lenders, three or four. It was three, three hard money lenders, had them come out to the house, borrowed all three mortgages at the same time and borrowed like roughly $400,000, deposited the money into a bunch of banks, pulled the money out in cash, and then took off. And then the secret service showed up, you know, a few months, maybe a month or so later. And uh, yeah, yeah. Gail, do you remember Gail? Do, well, she was uh, a U.S. attorney. Gail McKenzie. I don't know Gail. No. Yeah, she was in the U.S. attorney, or okay. she was a U.S. attorney. And but the Secret Service, I, I, the officer on my case was uh, Andrea Peacock. I know Andrea Peacock. She she, she was all. 
Very nice. Oh, yeah, she's very nice. She used to be with the Cobb County DA's office when I was there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, she she was interviewed by American Greed (laughs) when they did an episode. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's nice. You know, everybody's always talks about the FBI. I was like, the FBI, they were all mean. They were all kind of, kind of the, no, not really. There was this one FBI. (laughs) She was very nice too. But yeah, uh, but the the Secret Service, they were very polite, very professional, you know, not mean spirited. I've met some mean spirited people. Yeah. My, my involvement with the Secret Service has always been the same. Very professional, very nice. You know, they understand exactly what they're there to do and, you know. It's all good. There's no arrogance. I've worked yeah. with other agencies. You know, they can be a little. Mm, I know. You know, because even in my world, I'm not a fed. Yeah. Well, you know, just saying, you know, because you're not a fed, you know, yeah. sometimes you're treated differently because you're a little, you know, bitty city. But, you know, whatever we're doing still got you here. So you're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but I appreciate this. This has been fabulous wonderful okay yeah definitely i'm actually i think i'm going to atlanta again in august also because i'm i'm there's a a, a cyber crime uh convention there okay and they're just they're gonna have a bunch of people and so i'm supposed to go to that too yeah so Excellent. well i'm right here if you need something you know again i would love for you to come by and let's hang out I appreciate you guys watching. Do me a favor, hit the subscribe button, hit the bell so you get notified of videos just like this. Check out the description uh, box for Zone 7. Uh, Matt goes over uh, cold cases with other detectives, and I really appreciate you guys watching. Leave me a comment in the comment section, and uh, thanks for checking out the podcast. See you.